by starting a podcast here, I'm going to start off with reading a last paragraph by Mark Nicholas in the Mike Proctor book, which really touched me. And I think it uh, summarizes what we are going to be discussing today. So this is the paragraph. A man at the center of so much and in the middle of so much more. During his time with various administrations, he has been both well supported and hung out to dry. The role of match referee stretched him fully and at times went beyond his simple truths, such as the occasionally underhand nature of the modern game. The whole point about Proc is the simple truths alongside the glorious talents. I'd have paid to watch him play. Indeed, I did. I impersonated his quirky action, made to cream fully pitch balls over mid-off and extra cover, and even copied his style of speech. And now I'll read the book. Onwards, Michael John and Bravo. So this is an excerpt from uh, the book Caught in the Middle by Mike Proctor and Lungani Zama. So with that note, let me bring back Mike Proctor to the podcast for the second time. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, that's a very nice statement by Mark Nicholas, but I think he's a bit biased. You know, he's a very good friend of mine, so he couldn't <laughs> say anything else, really. <laughs> Yeah, last time we spoke was, I think, during when the pandemic had started. Back then, Zoom wasn't a thing. We were still doing calls on Skype. And I was, you know, a podcast rookie. You trusted me with this kind of a conversation. But today I have help uh, to do justice to someone of your caliber's time. So I have a very able podcast resident guest and my co-host today, Vijay Arumagam, who himself is a big cricket fan, a big Mike Proctor fan. So Vijay, thanks for doing this. And let's do this together and trying to you know, get his story from the horse's mouth. And, you know, the listeners would love this exchange. Welcome to the podcast, Vijay. Thank you very much, Sakib. Uh, thank you for having me again. Uh, Mike, uh, welcome to the pod. Uh, it's an absolute privilege for me to be on the same pod uh, along with you. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate your your call and your, your kind words. And um, great pleasure to be with you, both of you guys. It really is. No, believe me, pleasures are uh, really, it's on our end, but yes, it's very nice of you to do this. So anyway, Mike, you you are an absolute, you know, legend of the sport. Uh, if South Africa, uh, you know, were never gone away due to the political reasons, your name would be right there with the greatest all-rounders. And it still is. For anyone who knows the game, you are an iconic figure, uh, the way you bowled at Gloucestershire and your stint with South Africa, and the Packer games, uh, it's all out there. But for a young listener, uh, I want to kick off this podcast by going back to the World Series cricket, what it meant then, because the chapter is pretty rich. I won't give out all the details and how you you know, met Kerry uh, Packer back then and Tony Gregg was already recruiting players. So what do you remember of that time? And it really came at the twilight of your playing days. Uh, and you clearly said for others, it was a bigger sacrifice than South Africans. So just walk us through the process. And uh, what were the feelings for someone like you and Barry Richards when that offer came along? And 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 then, and of course, compared with the IPL, when you, you know, give your opening remarks. Yeah, thanks. It's a, a good point to, to start the podcast on because um, World Series cricket, as you rightly pointed out there, I think was sort of the start of, of, of like the IPL. I mean, Kerry Packer was a, an amazing man. Um, but to your first question about what it did mean to guys like Barry and Richards and myself, it was really a, a great blessing in disguise because we were out of test cricket. We'd been out of test cricket since 1970. 
Uh, this is now 1977, 78, 79, two seasons World Series cricket. And it was a, a really a challenge for us. And we just love to um, play with, with and against the best. But going back to, to Kerry Packer, uh, the, the Kerry Packer World Series started uh, around the, the, the centenary test uh, in Australia, or just prior to that, I'm not sure at what stage, but Kerry Packer had applied to the uh, the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Company, to, to televise the Ashes series, which was which which was coming up, um, and the Australian Australian Cricket Board uh, they declined his offer, which apparently was an enormous offer. Some people say double what uh, the Australian Broadcasting Company they offered. Uh, so they turned Packer down, and he he wasn't very really impressed about that. At the same time, uh, there was a lot of mumbling amongst the players, particularly in Australia uh, and England to a certain extent, except that the the players weren't getting remunerated enough. Uh, they were getting played uh, very, very poorly. In fact, the centenary test in 77 in Melbourne, uh, there were some 300-odd thousand people there, and uh, the, Australia, the Australians were getting $100 a test match. Um, so there, there was there were two 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 lots coming in here. Kerry Packer on the one side, the Australian cricketers on the other, uh, and they sort of Kerry Packer joined forces, as it were, with the Australian cricketers and sympathised with them. And um, you know, one thing led to another. Kerry Packer also had uh, realised that if he could televise uh, the World Series cricket, because um, one of the laws in Australia at the time was you had to have so much Australian. Australian content for your television shows, and uh, obviously, uh, World Series cricket would would take up a, a lot of that. So they could import other other programs. So um, Kerry Packer approached uh, Tony Gregg um, and, through, and Dennis Lilly and those guys, and they formed World Series cricket. And the idea was that they were going to have the rest of the world, an Australian team and a West Indian team. The West Indies, as we know. In that period, we're, we're flying high. We're without doubt the best side in the world by a mile. And it really was, was very, very interesting. And I think just to go forward, wind forward a little bit, I think it's one of the most amazing things, uh, that it never got out. When you think that, uh, with the three teams totaling in a, about a half, 56, 57 players, administrators, uh, guys on the uh, broadcasting, uh, so there were probably 70, 80 people that knew about World Series cricket and not one word ever got out, uh, which is, is truly amazing. Uh, I met Kerry Packer when we played against Sussex, Gloucestershire against Sussex at Hove. Uh, uh, Greggy told me what, what was what was going to happen. Uh, I met Kerry Packer and uh, got to know him. And in fact, after that, we had a meeting uh, at the hotel he was staying at, I think it was at Dorchester in London, and myself, Eddie Barlow, uh, Kerry and Tony Gregg. And uh, Kerry and, and Tony Gregg were asking Eddie Barlow and myself, you know, what would, what the makeup of the side should be as far as the world level is concerned. And would any other, any South Africans, should any South Africans be included? Uh, we, we mentioned two names that they hadn't, hadn't included were obviously Graham Pollock. And a guy called Dennis Hobson, who was a, a really magnificent legspin bowler in the Curry Cup in South Africa. Um, and Kerry immediately invited those two guys. And I think, as everyone knows, they uh, didn't play any, any cricket because it was opposed by the West Indies. 
that they being South Africans, they didn't play county cricket. That's why guys like myself and Barry and Clive Rice, uh, we, we sort of almost qualified to play World Series, whereas uh, Graham and Dennis Hobson didn't. But, um, you know, there's, there's so many stories around World Series cricket. And the first, the first year, it was really tough. Um, we were totally ostracized from anything to do with Australian cricket, obviously. So uh, if we had practices, Kerry had to practice higher grounds, whether it be schools or uh, nets from clubs. And it was very hard to, to even uh, get practices together. Uh, and the crowds the first year uh, weren't, weren't very good. The press was very, 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 very negative as far as World Series cricket was concerned. They called it a, a bit of a circus. But I can assure you, uh, it definitely wasn't because we realized as, as players, uh, we, we knew the outside world would be looking in big time. And for us to, to make it work, we had to perform at our very, very best, uh, which everyone realized. And I think uh, there were a lot of fast bowlers around those days, and it was very, very competitive. But I think after that first year, coming into the second year, it really did take off. And we had fantastic crowds. And I'll never forget uh, the crowd we had, not not we being the rest of the world, but uh, West Indies played Australia and the lights at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Uh, that was the first first ever under lights, coloured clothing, white ball, uh it hadn't been seen before, and the crowds flocked, and there was a full house. And Kerry opened the gates, and, and there was a, a few hundred people extra got in to, to see the game. There were some, I think, close to 40,000, 45,000 people, and it was a huge success. And that really was the, the start of World Series cricket really taking off. Um, there were a few games I remember. I remember one particular game we played at, uh, at VFL Waverley ground outside uh, Melbourne, which is uh, about an hour's drive. And we were playing the uh, West Indies, the World Eleven West Indies. And uh, the groundsman decided to, because it was a, a drop-in pitch, actually, because Waverley was a, was a football ground, and uh, the the pitch had to be made outside and then transported and laid down in the middle of this, this football ground. So it played very, very well when, that, when it was normal. They'd taken the grass off. Very hard wicket, like like they all are in Australia. And this particular uh, day-night day game, the groundsman decided to leave a bit of a grass on the pitch to see how it would behave. Well, it was a very, very fast pitch. It was a very bouncy pitch. And uh, we batted first. Barry Richards, Majid Khan opened the batting. And Majid was a magnificent player as well, very underrated batsman. Andy Roberts holding, Garner, Daniel, they were all playing. And the second over... I think it was Andy Roberts who bowled uh, a short ball to Majid Khan who went on the hook and he got smashed in the jaw, was taken to hospital, had his jaw wired up. Um, and it continued a little bit like that. There were a lot of short pitch bowling and the Australian crowd were bang for more blood. And uh, we were bowled out for just under 110. And Garner, Garner's figures were something ridiculous, like 10 overs, 2 for 12 something in that region, or three for 12. And our guys were um, in the dressing room, and in those days we listened to the listened to the, the broadcasters, Richie and Bill, and they were sort of suggesting that the, the world team weren't trying too hard, uh, that it didn't show enough guts and determination, and the West Indies would, would walk all over them. Well, this really fired us up. You know, we'd lost our mate, Majid. He was still in hospital. And uh, to cut a long story short, 
I had I had bumped into Joel Garner in the lift, and I said to the bird, "Is your is your finger healed? You you playing tonight?" And he sort of said, "Yeah, Brock, yeah." And it was the middle finger on his on his left hand. But anyway, we had the West Indies. Would you believe sixty five for nine? And who comes out to bat? Big Bird, Joel Garner. And he's strolling out. He's halfway to the crease. We all look up because we're in a, in a sort of semi semicircle. And Greggy looked at, uh, saw Joel, and he looked at the umpire, asked the umpire how many balls were left. The umpire said four. Clive Rice happened to be bowling. And Greggy said, Rice, I want the quickest four bounces you've ever bowled in your life. Well, it only took one because Rice ran in first ball to Joel. And Joel was looking to get on the front foot. And it was just outside of stump, probably in the batsman's half. And Big Bird, uh, his bat went up and up and up. And he fended this ball off uh, with his left hand in the end. And it hit him where this broken finger had apparently mended. Well, <laughs> Joel, Joel threw off the glove. He smashed the wickets down with his bat. There was two stumps left. He kicked those two stumps over. And he walked off the field. That was it. We the end of the game. We won that game, uh, but it, it was it was very very competitive, very very tough. And just to show you uh, an illustration of, of Kerry Packer and how he operated. I mean, he was a very 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 successful business guy. Um, and he we had a, the next day. Funnily enough, we played on the same pitch, but we were playing against uh, the Australians. That grass was taken off, and it was a pretty good pitch. And there were, with the lights, there was obviously uh, problems with residential areas. So the lights had to be out by 10, 10.30. We'd never had a problem before. Uh, this was earlier in the series, but we never had a problem. Uh, and it came about this game because uh, we were we were about 30 runs light of, of uh, the Australians total. Uh, we were seven wickets down. And there was about 12, 13 minutes to go till 10.30. So one of... Terry Packer's guys walked up to him and said, Mr. Packer, we've got a bit of a problem here. said, uh, you know, the three wickets or the 30 runs, I think either way, uh, we're going to go We're going to go past 10.30. So Kerry, how he would normally say, well, what are you going to do about it, son? Anyway, the guy said, well, I don't know. Kerry said, well, I'll tell you what you do. He said, you see that clock over there? That big clock? He said, that's the clock that they're going by. You make sure that that second hand doesn't get to 10.30, okay? And, and luck would happen. Apparently, the CEO of World Series at that time paid a couple of Aussie school kids to hold that handle to make sure it didn't reach 10.30. But that's just kind of the kind of guy Kerry Packer was. He had a, had a lot of influence uh, and, and a very um, very honorable guy. Unbelievable. Yeah, there's amazing stories about him uh, in the gambling world, uh, the business world. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure Vijay will have a follow-up question. So I have one here, right there. So as as society, as people, right, we all resist change. I mean, World Series cricket in Packer was just before my time. I think when it happened, I was maybe one year old or something. Um, but in IPL and guilty as charged, even I was one of those skeptic voices as a fan who didn't like that change. And it's, it's changed the game. Like club has taken precedence for many a. Uh, nation because of the you know of the lucrative handouts uh it's such a such a priority uh, to play in the IPL because uh, it's a different generation cricket is changing so similarly i'm sure Kerry packer changed the landscape of the game so regarding that's that sense the money that came in 
was was already a given. But uh, like the Joel Garner anecdote you just mentioned, it just clearly showed the ferociousness and the competitiveness and the added bonus. So pl- it was a serious thing. So if anybody who thought this is just some professional cricketers doing an exhibition, it was far from it. So I would encourage the, the users to get the copy of a book. So, But I'll just dive in here and then I'm sure Vijay has a follow-up. Uh, yeah. So what was it like sharing the the change room with the likes of you know, Imran Khan and Majid Khan. Who else was there in your team? I know there were a bunch of South Africans. Uh, there's a couple of Englishmen. So just, uh, you know, just give a quick yeah, overview. Yeah, and I'm sure Vijay has a follow-up, yeah. Yeah, um number of Englishmen, Dennis Amos, uh, Derek Underwood, Tony Gregg, Alan Knott, uh, and uh, Bushtag Mohammed, uh, Javid Meandad, uh, Dennis Amos, South African club, Ross played, Garth LaRue. Uh, who the guys uh, wouldn't have known about, but he was a very successful fast bowler, very quick. Um, so it was a it was a cosmopolitan team, guys from all over, and we we really enjoyed each other's company. We got on really really well, and and, and we had a good time. We, we did uh, we won the the final game, the final game, which ended up being the, the last game ever for World Series cricket. Uh, we played the rest of the world played uh, the World Eleven played uh, Australia. And Australia had lost the final of the one-day series to the West Indies. And somehow Australia had beaten the West Indies to get to this final. We had beaten the West Indies, so we had we had got to the final uh, a couple of times. And Australia somehow qualified to play us. And they were they were really hell-bent on making sure they won. And it was a peculiar game because the first um, first two innings, first innings by both teams were very small. We, uh, we, I think we made about 140 odd. England and, uh, Australia had around about the same score. I mean, I think they had a, a lead of about 20 odd runs, 150, 160, 140. Very, very small. The second innings, uh, we needed about 230 to win on a pitch which was, uh, a bit up and down at Sydney. Uh, and, it, and it was sort of a, but just a par score, I would say at least it was going to be we're going to be tough to get it. And just to, just going back to prior to that game, is England were touring the West Indies at that time, and it was obviously the pack of pack of players wanted to play Test cricket for their countries, so it was decided uh, that Mushtag and Javid went back to Pakistan. And get picked to the England, the Pakistan team to play against England, which didn't transpire, but that was the intention. So we were a couple of players short for the, for the world, the world 11 to play this, this, this final. And Greggy, Tony Greg, who hadn't had a very good season at all. Uh, I don't think he'd played a, a super test up till then. Uh, and Eddie Barlow, who hadn't played a super test up till then, uh, we drafted into the side. And, and Tony Greg being, being Greggy, uh, and with the influence of Packer, there were headlines at the the Sydney Morning Herald, and the headlines were something like, you know, I'm a big match player, and I'll probably take five wickets and make 100 and rah, 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 and boosting himself and the world team up against the Aussies. Uh, the Australians the Australians <laughs> weren't very happy about this, and actually the, I think Ian Chappell, the, the captain, actually pinned this on the on the dressing room wall just to, to motivate his guys even more. So they were hell bent on, on winning this game. You know, we needed two thirty odd. Um, at one stage, we were ninety odd for four. Uh, then I came in uh, with Barry, 
and we got to took the total to narrow narrow enough for needing about thirty forty runs when I got out, and Barry got a magnificent magnificent hundred uh, to win us the game. Well, Ian Chapel was was really uh, not happy about the situation at all, and in fact, I think it's actually on YouTube. Someone tip the last ball yep. that was bowled was. Sorry, four whites, four whites. He he bowled yeah, four yeah, whites. Yeah, he he just he he. I don't know whether he didn't want us to actually score the runs off the bat or whatever, but he suddenly uh, took the ball. He was a part-time dexman, I suppose. Uh, bowled a few overs in Test cricket, but very limited. And he just grabbed the ball. Marshy was behind the stumps. He had been going back because it was all the fast bowlers that had been bowling Pascoe and Lily and Gilmore, and uh, he sort of marshaled the troops around and set some sort of field for. Penny, but that didn't matter because Ian Chappell ran up and bowled his ball, I suppose, 45 degrees down the leg side and about 20 foot in the air. And it went for, for four whites and we, we won the game. And then at the end of that game, it was obviously a Channel 9, uh, big Channel 9 presentation. Uh, we were all lined up uh, waiting for the Australians to come through to get the presentation. And that took, that took a probably well, the best part of four or five minutes, which is a long time, you know, for the, the TV to get going. But eventually they did come through and uh, we shook hands and they weren't, they weren't very happy. But eventually it, it did die down and we had a few drinks in the, in the dressing room afterwards. Yeah, a great explanation, Mike, I says Vijay. So, yeah, I think that Ian Chappell uh, deliberate bowling of a wide, four wides, it's attributed to the fact that, as you rightly said, Greg Chappell hadn't contributed enough or hadn't played enough uh, in that series, but still he was going to get that big winner's purse, which uh, Ian Chappell wasn't happy about. I think that was his uh, remonstration of his frustration, so to speak. Now, I want to I want to bring a couple of elements. I mean, um, especially this is the fascinating aspect about South Africa and the the apartheid and how they were banned from cricket, right? So, for example, it's a tale of two prime ministers, I could say that, like, uh, uh, in many ways, uh, you could say that uh, uh, the South African prime minister, Wooster, his name, right? Wooster, like, he was the one who uh, stopped the uh, Basil D'Oliveira affair. And then we had, yeah, Wooster. Then the Jamaican prime minister, uh, he wouldn't agree to the fact that the West Indian players could share their dressing rooms and the pack-up series with the South Africans. Again, Kerry Packer's influence was so much. I think Michael Holding had spoken a lot about it, about uh, how Kerry Packer was influential in getting the Jamaican Prime Minister on board. I think the other interesting aspect, I think this is the the, the Western democracy and the, the independent rights. South Africa as a cricket nation was banned. However, the individual South African players were allowed to play both in the Shield cricket here in Australia as well as in the county cricket because uh, the Western uh, you know, labor laws were such that you can't be denied uh, employment uh, to apply your trade in, in the UK or in Australia. The courts will not allow that to happen, though at a national level or at a, at a as a sporting body, the body was banned. So these are the interesting intrigues, uh, you know, intriguing things about the whole thing, which I'm sure when people look at it uh, in almost like 40 odd years later, uh, these are the interesting things. And then when you talk about how you happen to share all the dressing room, um, and the other other interesting anecdote I've heard about Barry Richards and Kerry uh, uh, Packer and his influence, I think this is a very famous story because he was playing for South Australia. Uh, and I think he had requested to get his permanent residency in this country because he was on a visa, work visa, whatever. Uh, he had uh, rung up Kerry Packer and told him that I needed a, you know, a, a permanent residency if it's possible. And apparently he had said, 
come to my office on Monday and meet my uh, executive assistant or secretary, as they used to be called in. So Barry Richards had walked in uh, to his office and apparently Kerry had happened to ring up who was the Australian immigration minister back then and said, uh, there's a gentleman called uh, Barry Richards would come over there. Can you please grant him that? So basically, apparently, the story goes, uh, Barry Richards just showed up and they gave him the permanent residency based on that one particular phone call from Kerry Packer to the Australian immigration minister. That would never happen uh, in 2023 or in, 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 in the current set of circumstances. But back then, his influence was such a telling thing across the board. Well, um, well, yeah. What is interesting about that, you brought that up, and the story behind that, and you know, I've asked Barry, it is, it is, it is public knowledge, uh, but he only told me the stories a few years back. Is at the end of that first series, first season, uh, Kerry Packer got his guys together, his committee, who obviously was Richie Benno, uh, uh, Tony Gregg, Clive Lloyd, uh, Ian Chappell. And a few Linton Taylor and a couple of his guys. So they were about Andrew Caro, Andrew Caro, maybe Andrew Caro, maybe Andrew Caro. I think, think yeah, Andrew Caro was involved. I think then he got he, he got stood down at some stage or, or sacked. But yeah. they they were there. And, and Kerry Kerry opened the meeting and said, "Listen, guys, we've got a bit of a problem here." He said, "The Australian team's not good enough." He said, "They've got to be more competitive. They've got to start winning things." And gave a bit of a spiel. He said, "What I'm going to, what I want, what I intend to do is, uh, I want to get a, a, a Barry Richards to come and play in the Australian team." He, he said, um, "I can organise this. I can organise that." And as you so rightly have said, some of the things that he could organise. Um, and what do you guys think about that? Well, he went round the room, Andrew Carrow, Linton Taylor, the other guys, and they all said no. Kerry, being Kerry, said, "Okay, I'm doing it." So he called up Barry, uh, went to meet Kerry Packer. He told Barry what the story was, anything you particularly want. Barry, not really. Uh, he said, come back in a week's time and you'll have uh, your identification documents, travelling documents, uh, documentation that you can stay in Australia. In the interim, a few days after that meeting and a few days prior to Kerry meeting Barry again, uh, Tony Gregg went to Kerry and he said, "Kerry, you know, I don't. We don't think this is right that we get Barry, Barry Richards to play. I, I don't want to lose him in the world team. I just don't think it'd be right, uh, you know." But he said, well, "What I've done," he said, "I've actually found another player for you." And Kerry said, "Oh, who?" And he said, "A guy by the name of Kepler Vessels." And Kepler <laughs> Vessels, Kepler Vessels was playing cricket in South Africa in the Curry Cup. That is actually where Kepler Vessels started from. So they, they. Docked on the head the Barry Richards story, and they invited Kepler Vessels to play. So, and the rest for Kepler Kepler is, is amazing because you know who was Kepler Vessels at that stage, but suddenly he played in the in the Australian uh, Rebel side. Uh, an amazing story. But just going hey, back so, to, sorry, 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 go, go ahead, go ahead, Mike. No, go no, ahead, sorry. Carry on World Series. I was going to bring another aspect. Did any more about World Series? You want to know? Now, one follow-up question, uh, Mike. You know, you played for Natal, you played for Odisha, then you had a very successful season, many, many seasons at Gloucester. And then, of course, World Series cricket, the West Indians have said that, Pakistanis have said that, that kind of gave the finishing touch. But I want 
I want your views in terms of the Curry Cup versus the county cricket because the South African rugby has always prided prided itself on the fact that the Curry Cup was the best tournament ever and they were better than all blacks even during their uh, apartheid era, etc., etc. Would you would you say that the Curry Cup in cricket during the time you played for Natal, uh, Rhodesia, and then of course uh, Western Cape was comparable to what was there in the county cricket or county cricket was superior because of uh, the system, pitches, etc., etc.? What are your views on that, Mike? Well, I think county cricket was was superior because you had uh, the personnel. I mean, for example, in, in, when I was playing for Gloucester, Somerset had Joel Garner, Viv Richards, uh, and Ian Botham. Okay, Ian Botham was English. Uh, Hampshire had Andy Roberts, Gordon Greenwich, uh, Clive Lloyd in, in Lancashire. I think Mikey Holding was there for a while. So I, I think the personnel made up was of a higher standard than, than South Africa, uh, which is pretty obvious. But the, the the problem in South Africa was from from nineteen more so from nineteen seventy is it was always a tough competition the Curry Cup because you played so few games. I mean, I, I mean, when I first went to county cricket, I thought, gee, was I playing playing thirty odd games, whatever it is? Where in South Africa, I might play eight games, six games, maybe only be Curry Cup matches. Um, so they were intense, a lot of pressure on them. And as as with nineteen seventy came, and then we were out of out of Test cricket. During that period, after that, the Curry Cup was really, really tough because this was now the ultimate for the guys. There's no test cricket, so we've got to everyone give 110%. They, they, everyone tried that much harder, which led to a, a, not a big problems on the field, but but very, very serious stuff, and um, it, it hardened you as a, as a as a player. So I would I would say the Curry Cup cricket then was was, was harder in terms of intensity uh, than county cricket. But county cricket standard of, of play was was better because of uh, because of the fantastic uh, group of, of international players that were playing county cricket at the time. Yeah, but just no, going, just, just, going, just going back to you mentioned Rhodesia and and the one thing you were mentioning about the, the minister of, of in Jamaica and and the problems with World Series cricket and who played and who didn't play uh, from the South African contingent. But I, I was I, I played a lot of my cricket in Rhodesia. Then, as it was called, uh, I went there in 1970, and um, fortunately, I was very fortunate to to play uh, and under Gary Sir Gary Sobers in 1970. There was a test series because the South African tour had been cancelled because of the Oliveira affair, and England had invited South Africa to tour, uh, and there was a lot of pressure from the outside world uh, to stop the tour, which they did. Uh, the TCCB, the Test County Cricket Board in England as they were called then, uh, decided to have a five-match series, England uh, against the rest of the world. And the English side was a very good side then. They, in fact, after that series, 71-72, went on to to beat Australia in the Ashes, that Ashes series. Uh, Earlyworth was captain, John Snow, Tony Gregg, Jeff Boycott, Derek Underwood, Basil Dolivere himself. And we we played this five-test match series against, against England, which was, you know, to me, just fantastic because Sir Gary Sobers was a fantastic cricketer, uh, most unbelievable you know cricketer I've, I've ever been fortunate enough to play with or against. And the first Test match I'll never forget is we played it at Lords, and Gary bowled magnificently in the first innings. We, we bowled England out for about 120. Gary got five or six wickets for virtually no runs. Uh, we then got close to 400 odd. Gary got a mag- magnificent 180. 
And in about five seconds, uh, we, we then took a long time to bowl England out the second innings. They took a long time to get to 300 odd, but we won pretty convincingly. And Gary only took one or two wickets and caught a couple of catches. And, you know, I was, just was in wonder and in awe of, of, of Gary, how easily he did it and how well he did it. Uh, and so humble the way he did it. He was just a, an amazing cricketer. And when I got back to Deja, I said to the the, the, uh, the governing body there, to a couple of the guys, I said, "What we, we what we, one thing we must do is we've got to try and get Gary Sobers here. Told him what a fantastic cricketer is, what a great guy he is. We've got to try and get him here because we, we I didn't want to go to South Africa. I wasn't that interested in getting to South Africa. We wanted to get him to, to Rhodesia. And we invited Gary. We actually made uh, a double wicket competition, invited Gary to play in our double wicket competition, uh, which Gary won, as you would guess. Uh, he met the then Prime Minister of Rhodesia, Ian Smith. Uh, then when he got back to West Indies, uh, he had problems from all sorts of people. I think India were going to be touring there, and there were a lot of problems. I think, that again, the Minister of Jamaica, and I, I, it, it was it was not very nice for Gary. Gary was was asked about it. He said, "You know, I, I'm an ambassador for cricket. He said, I, I I build bridges and try and not not break them down." And he handled everything so fantastically well. Uh, did Gary and you know we schoolmates now, but uh, that was just in reference to you know when you mentioned about World Series and the problems we had um, with the West Indies and being South African. Interesting. So hold that thought. I'll probably come back to Gary, Sir Gary Sobers, and because you know this kind of a conversation doesn't unfold here every day. So me and Vijay can probably keep you here for hours. But uh, given you know we have a yeah, sure. you know it's a yeah, podcast, yeah, sure. and uh, you know I don't want you be, to be spending all your Sunday afternoon with us. So let's go and bring in India. Uh, it'll be an understatement to say India won't play a, a small part or large part in your overall landscape. So let's talk about the readmission. You are the coach of the South African team that comes back to cricket thanks to uh, huge efforts by Dr. Ali Bakar, who's, uh, who could easily be the chief architect for the comeback. So let's talk about that tour of 91 when South Africa replaces Pakistan as the touring team to India. There are no test matches, but, you know, it must have been, uh, I mean, we all read about it, but it must have been some sort of a surreal feeling to be back in a cricket capacity. And now you are as a coach, so... Just inform a young listener what that tour meant and uh, what comes back when we talk about the readmission. Well, it, it started, I was the director of cricket at Northampton. And uh, the, the South African contingent uh, of the president of South African cricket, Oli Bacha, uh, three or four of the guys come over and they went they put a submission in to get back into test cricket. Now to get to 91, and it was early June, and they come to try and get back into, into international cricket. Uh, just after that, must have been mid-June, early second week of June, I get a phone call from Dr. Ali Bacha, and he says, we're back into international cricket. And it was just an unbelievable feeling that we'd suddenly been accepted back into the fold. We'd been out for, for so long. And he, Ali at that time said, we don't know what's, what's happening Um you know that the itineraries have been a lot of itineraries have been sorted out, we, but we'll wait and see what's happened. But so we we now back in international cricket, and then a week or so later, Doctor Ali Bakker phoned me and he said, uh, "What suddenly happened is we're going to go on a tour to India." Now this is just unbelievable. Yeah, we are 
uh, from South Africa going to tour India. And he said to me, you know, we're gonna, you, you, if you would accept, you'd be the coach, uh, which I did, obviously. It was a fantastic honor for me. And I hastily prepared conselectors, uh, picked a team, and suddenly uh, these South Africans were going to tour India. And it was just unbelievable. We, we, we were, when, when we left to, to go to India, to, to Calcutta, we were, I suppose, all a little bit apprehensive. Yeah, we are going into unknown territory. Uh, how, how would the people of, of, of India treat us? Well, we arrived in, in, in Calcutta, and from there we went to the hotel, which was about, well, I suppose, about half an hour away. And there were people lining the streets, but hundreds and hundreds of hundreds. And it was just amazing, uh, the sort of warmth and the welcome that we got from the Indian people. We got back to the hotel, uh, and we really couldn't believe it. Um, the first game was was uh, in Calcutta against against India, but the sort of the feeling I have that was the hospitality from the Indian people was absolutely incredible, and I couldn't believe you know how they knew everyone's facts, they knew all their figures, uh, they were very very clued up on on world cricket, and it was you know for us such a pleasure to be welcomed like that uh, by the Indian people. And that first game was was at Eden Gardens, some ninety thousand people. And it, it, the whole, it, it, the word I think you mentioned was surreal. It, it was it was surreal. You sort of, you know, is this, this is actually happening? Uh, I think we got it was a three match series that was uh, called, and that that happened because Pakistan uh, were touring were meant to tour India, uh, and they either didn't inform India, uh, but anyway, we we took their their place for that. That's how the three match series started. Uh, three one-day games. The first one is Calcutta, and we 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 were bowled out for about 170, 180, and uh, which was miles to miles to uh, lower score. And fortunately, Alan Donald bowled brilliantly. He picked up a, he picked up four or five wickets, and India ended up winning pretty comfortably by by three wickets with a a young little superstar Sachin Tendulkar getting 40 or 50. But the experience of playing in front of that crowd was was unbelievable. It really was. Uh, we then played at two other centres and the en route, and in between the games we went to the Taj Mahal, which was again an unbelievable experience. Uh, we met Mother Teresa, um, and this was this was all happening to us. It was like unbelievable experiences, and everywhere we went, the the, the people were were so warm and hospital hospitality was was just brilliant. But it was a it was a tour that I don't think anyone who, who went on that tour will ever forget, and it was just the, I suppose from from apprehension point of view, and then suddenly to be welcomed like that was was just uh, just amazing. And Mike, you're an international cricketer, you know, even before the readmission as a coach, and this is just a more a spontaneous question. As an Indian, you know, now I live in the in US, uh, and so does Vijay, you know, lives in Australia. So even before. Uh, the you know the the ban and then the readmission, India were wonderful hosts because that kind of marked the reentry. What I'm trying to say is like, did any other country treat uh, cricketers uh, like superstars? Because there's something with the hospitality that comes in the subcontinent, and I can speak to it for India. I'm sure a Pakistani can speak to that. So can you just compare quickly, and then I'll bring Vijay in uh, how, how India were as hosts. Uh, with the readmission party and the readmission caravan going all over the world, England welcome you back. Then you played in Australia, 
So India does treat their cricketers and, and their cricket guests, I think, with uh, with a lot of hospitality, if I'm looking for another word. So just talk about that quickly and then we'll uh, I'll bring Vijay in. Yeah, that's, that's that's really very interesting because um, you know in, in England, Australia, South Africa, the crowds follow you around. You get we get good crowds, and you get a lot of support. But you, you suddenly go to the subcontinent. You go to India, and, and funny enough, just changing the rep, India apparently were our proposals. They proposed to the ICC uh, that we got back into Test cricket, going back to 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 nineteen ninety one. Uh, but the Indian people, there's, there's just a, a warmth, um, feeling of such goodwill, and and you treat it as a superstar, your superstar status. It's, it's just incredible, and it is. It is in it, those countries, India, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. Um, they they different. The people the people are different to Australia, England, South Africa, for example. Uh, they. I don't. I don't know what it is. It's just the warmth, the knowledge of cricket. I'm not saying that other people don't don't have the knowledge, but it's just the way they they revere all, all the cricketers. It's just a, it's just surreal, really. Hi. So quickly, uh, you know, Vijay, you and I were watching this uh, this comeback from our you know our TV sets in in Delhi and and, and Chennai, and what I remember uh, is. Because I, I didn't know much about South Africa. I know they're coming back. And even the first one day at the Eden Gardens uh, was a low-scoring affair, even, you know, by early 90s standard. But one one sat down in awe of South Africa and, and thought, of course, you know, they were playing in county cricket. And the first thing was, wow, these guys were gone for so long and it was still such a battle. And, uh, you know, India chased that down carefully, but it was still a fight. And that kind of set the tone uh, like how competitive and how quickly world class this unit is going to get. So, uh, the floor is yours as a fan. Just paint a picture for someone, you know, who absorbed the readmission and what were your initial impressions. And I'm sure we can follow up this conversation further with Mike. Yeah, Sakib, I think it's a good explanation given by Mike uh, on the readmission. Um, a couple of things, right? A bit of a context. Uh, India had qualified for the final of the Davis Cup. Uh, the tennis tournament in 1974. India had beaten Soviet Union, South Africans had beaten Italy, and the final was supposed to be played at Ellis Park in, in Johannesburg. And back then, the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi said no, uh, she wouldn't let the Indian team to go and play uh, in South Africa due to apartheid. Unfortunately, they couldn't uh, find a compromise and they couldn't play at a neutral venue, which meant India had to literally forfeit a Davis Cup final, which they thought they would have beaten. Of course, the South Africans would argue that they would have beaten India. Uh, India had to wait for another 13 years before they had to play another Davis Cup final, which was in Gothenburg in indoor clay. They couldn't. They didn't have a chance against uh, Stefan Edberg and Co. That's a different story. So, from a context perspective, India had, in principle, uh, sacrificed its sporting success by isolating South Africa. So it was surreal that it was India that had. Uh, hosted South Africa back in 1991 um, uh, for these, you know, for this historic three ODI series. Another point, uh, Mike was right about the fact that uh, there was a bit of an Indo Indo Park uh, issues going on, and there was a tour that was cancelled that allowed India to open the the window to let South Africa in. But in a way, it kind of affected Indian performance or Indian preparation for the the crucial 
five test series of Australia in 91-92 because they were supposed to get to the WACA in Perth had a 10-day camp or a practice on the usually the, the WACA practice which wickets were bouncier than the actual WACA wickets that's where the subcontinental teams and visiting teams would come and get acclimatized to the Australian conditions before they moved to the eastern shore but that was literally delayed or uh, or you know curtailed because the South African series had to be accommodated so in a way it hurt Indian cricket's progress um, from an Australian tour perspective but uh, you know, from a for the greater cause of good, you know, getting South Africa back to cricket was important because if we just had Australia, England, West Indies, India, and Pakistan, getting a strong side like South Africa added a lot to the to the world cricket. In terms of my memory, I had watched Patrick Patterson bowl in India in 1987. In the first couple of Test matches, he was rapid, and I was too young to have watched Malcolm Marshall in India in 1983. Um, so Patterson was the quickest I had seen on TV. But then when we watched Alan Donnell at the Eden Gardens that afternoon, he was rapid. He was letting the ball fly. And I mean, as Mike said, there was a very good partnership between Sachin Tendulkar and uh, Praveen Amre, young Praveen Amre, who happened to score his debut 100 at, uh, uh, at, uh, at Kingsmead uh, in the following tour when India went to South Africa. So they had a very good partnership. You could see that Donald was really, really quick. He was, he was letting the ball fly. R. Mohan, who used to write for the Hindu, and the sports star, he had given a very good preview about how some of these South African players, Jimmy Cook and Alan Donnell and others were playing at county cricket. So we had some idea, but again, we didn't know what the quality was because back then we didn't get the footage from uh, from county cricket uh, on Indian TV. So that was exciting. I mean, uh, and Adrian Kepa, I still remember Adrian Kepa was a very, very exciting talent. And uh, he, I mean, Sakib, you were in the Delhi game, right? The, the game was played at the Jawaharlal Nehru Indoor Stadium. And the pyrotechnics of Adrian Caper, he was he was one of those fascinating hitters. I don't know what it is with South Africa. Adrian Caper, then they had Eric Simons, then they had Klusner. They've always had some, um, you know, good big hitters, and he was he was uh, a, a big hitter um, of the ball. Um, and I think yeah, I think uh, it, it was a very very eye opening thing uh, to get South Africa back. The other interesting anecdote, Sakib, I would like to add is. Um, Till then, nobody really cared about getting cricket over India because Indian quality of the television production was poor, which was never up to standard because Doordarshan India's state broadcaster was not the best when it came to best-in-class quality. But SABC, South Africa's state broadcaster, South African Broadcasting Corporation, they were super excited and they said, we're sending our commentators over. We're getting your uh, pictures. This is the money. Doordarshan was shocked. The officials in Doordarshan were shocked that somebody was paying in US dollars to get coverage out of us. Then it was followed by BBC TV in the UK because they thought it was historic. So suddenly, uh, both in the UK and in South Africa, on their free-to-air TV, these three one-day games were going to be televised. And, well, they all thought they were going to get some quality cricket. But what they got as picture quality was, I'm told, shocking to them because... Uh, SABC were used to some very good quality of their Curry Cup and, you know, Rebel Tours and stuff. We've got some YouTube videos of the Rebel Tours and stuff. Uh, similarly, uh, in England, you know, BBC had good good standards as well. So that was another uh, cultural shock to some of our uh, foreign listeners or viewers on TV when they got the picture quality. But I, I, think, I think that's a bit of a minor nitpicking in the grand scheme of things. For me, Sakib, there's one image, right? Jimmy Cook and uh, Andrew Hudson in the white helmets. I think they had Panasonic as their uh, shirt sponsor. They were walking out from the BC Roy Pavilion. Ali Bakkar was standing there 
you couldn't wipe the smile off his face. That man had worked extremely hard to get South Africa back. And he knew what apartheid was. He knew what uh, isolation was. He knew what ostracizing was. To see him there standing there with a big beaming smile, maybe even Mike Proctor was standing just behind him as a coach. I think that to me was the, the defining image of that series. And I think uh, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, India played a, a tiny part in bringing South Africa back to the fold and also India hosted. Um, and, uh, and uh, I mean, like you and me, Slaki, we were privileged to have watched those games on TV. I know you went to the Delhi game as well. So, yeah, it was a, it was a historic moment. Um, you know, that's something that uh, we could all take to our graves, having been part of a very, very important cricketing moment. Yeah, the Delhi game was a night of prayer, right, at the JNS Stadium when uh, me and my friend uh, went with uh, uh, his parents and some family of theirs. Yeah, I mean, it was a long night and Tendulkar not scoring much made the night even longer, but hey, <laughs> it, was, it was a historic outing. So India, again, you know, like I said, uh, you know, Mike was part of the readmission. There was a love affair with India for South African cricket. For Mike, the, the honeymoon lasted till, say, 17 odd years and let's bring in monkey gate and mike uh, you were the match referee i'm sure this conversation will have layers vijay will have a lot of follow-ups and you have a lot to say uh the book is a deeper dive for many indian fans to revisit 16 year anniversaries coming up in you know in a few months time so let's set the stage for this conversation or this uh, question of the podcast uh yuvraj singh also was part of a panel hearing in the Melbourne test and you didn't realize like what's coming next because if that was a scene setter uh, no one had any anticipation what's going to unfold of the New Year's test in Sydney so just give us uh, your view leading up to the Sydney test what was your relation uh, with the game of cricket as a match referee and what was your relation with the Indian side the Australian side and the floor is yours and I'm sure uh, we both will have a lot to chime in well up until the um the monkey gate, as you call it, uh, I, I'd put on very well. I always always thought I uh, enjoyed the Indian. I enjoyed the Indian players very much. In fact, I did a, a number of their their uh, games as uh, as a match referee. Uh, in fact, I did that famous one when India followed on in Adelaide, and uh, they won the game. Uh, and I enjoyed watching the play. They were really nice people. Australians, uh, similar, uh, played it a bit tough. But I, I seem I seem to get on uh, pretty well with them, and a match referee's role is uh, is like a CEO of a company, I suppose. You you there uh, to look after both teams, and and one of the one of the things I always used to try and do uh, was to speak to the manager or the coach uh, before play started, see if there were any problems uh, amongst it, amongst the opposition, etc. Because I always thought an unwritten part of the match referee's job. Uh, was to try and make the two teams gel. Uh, you know, you didn't want you didn't want any big problems. But you know, up until up until uh, uh, the Hobbs and Singh Andrew Simons episode, um, I got on very well with everyone. The, the unfortunate part about that hearing uh, with uh, Andrew Simons and, and Hobbs and Singh was uh, it was the night of a test match where there was a lot of feeling going between the two sides. And that was the unfortunate part about that hearing. So, Mike, I think one thing I want to understand from you as a as a match referee, you've done it, right? So sometimes you go on long tours, like you've been a player, you've been a coach, you know what it takes to be on a long tour, right? Sometimes you're homesick, you're away. 
how does it work on a tour like that? The reason I'm asking is there was one example in 2003-04. Uh, Chris Broad uh, was their match referee uh, between Sri Lanka and England. And apparently he was seen drinking with Australians quite regularly on the tour because he's probably uh, he didn't have any friends in Sri Lanka and he was drinking with the, the Australian team. The Sri Lankans saw that regularly, but they didn't make a big fuss. But they, during the third test in Colombo, there was an incident where Justin Langer had removed the bales and uh, it was seen as an act that was inappropriate. Then it, when we went to the match referee's room, um, uh, and uh, Langer apologized, honestly saying, look, mate, I made an honest mistake, etc., etc." And Chris Broad took his words literally, and he said, okay, I'm ready to give you a certain uh, penalty or punishment, whatever. But the Sri Lankans were incensed, and they thought, uh, because there was a conflict of interest, in their words, because the match referee was seen dining and whining and dining with the one set of players that gave the Australians a bit of an unfair advantage. Now, again, it's one example I'm trying to give because at the end of the day, if you're on a tour of Australia for 90 days, you're going to have dinners, team dinners, you know, high commission, prime minister. I mean, you're going to mingle with the players and umpires and stuff. So I just want to understand what are the lines that a match referee, in your opinion, shouldn't cross? And what are the do's and don'ts that you follow? Because it can get a bit of a, uh, you know, a siege mentality, right? And you don't want to be accused of bias or you don't want to be accused of nepotism or, you know, favoring one side. So what are the, some of the things they do in preparation on a long tour like that? And what do you do? What do you don't do? If you can give a, a brief overview, that'd be great before we get into the Monkey Gate uh, actual hearing, Mike. Well, um, fortunately, as match referee and with umpires, you don't you do not do a, lo- a, a whole tour. So if it is a long tour, uh, you don't need to probably half of it. Another match referee or another set of umpires would, would come in. But just going back to that Chris Broad episode, I, I, I felt fairly strongly uh, in, in not mixing with to the teams, either team. I hardly uh, hardly mixed at all, in fact. I went to Australia on a number of occasions uh, to do match referee with the uh, Indian team a lot, uh, a couple of other teams, the English team. And I, I never mixed with the players. I, I always felt that um, shouldn't be seen, as, as you rightly say, you know, something can go awry. And I always felt fairly strongly about that. So uh, from that point of view, you know, I, I stayed stayed away as far as socialising with with other other set of teams. Although, um, you know, you are invited to some functions, which obviously you have to go to, uh, which which is great. Uh, but that's 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 the bottom line. At functions, you go to a function, uh, mix with the players, umpires, mix with the umpires, the administrators, and you do your duty as far as that's concerned. But outside of that, going for to private dinners or private parties. Uh, Having drinks, having cocktails, going on trips uh, with a with a set of players uh, for me was a was a big no no. So it, it wasn't it wasn't a great preparation. You realise it could be a, a lonely job on that tour. Uh, you knew friends around, uh, which you which you had made uh, prior to becoming a match referee. There were obviously for a South African, there were a lot of South Africans, a number of South Africans around. So um, you know you could always in your spare time, as it were. You know, uh, go go to other people's houses and, and uh, have dinners and etc. like that. But uh, you know, to answer that question, I, I definitely was a, a no no as far as mixing too socially with with other set of players. Yeah, that was a great question, Vijay. Yeah, and thanks, Mike, for taking that on. So, okay, so let's go to the hearing. Uh, this is uh, the Sydney Test. You know, it was a 
very competitive uh, and also hotly uh, contentious test match. Australia came at the right end of it, you know, on the last day in the closing hours. So now fill us in, you know, what transpired and, you know, to the hearing and, you know, in most complex terms in the world today, racism, you know, was at the center of it. So fire away, Mike. Yeah, the unfortunate thing about about the hearing that was scheduled for the the night of the the last uh, the test match in Sydney, uh, it was very unfortunate. It was, it was after that game because, as you rightly said, uh, it was a tight, tense game. Australia got the upper hand late, um, very tense game. Uh, both sides feeling it, very close game, and um, the tensions were were running high. Uh, the hot to, to start with, uh, nothing had been organised for us. Uh, there was no recordings of it. We had to find a room ourselves, which we eventually did, uh, with a guy called Nigel Peters. Because Nigel Peters was absconded by the International Creep Council uh, to come to the hearing uh, as a as a observer uh, in his legal capacity. As a, as a he was a, a QC in those days uh, to make sure that I gave both sides an opportunity to air their views, uh, to make sure that I followed a procedure in, in, in answering the questions and, and putting out the questions to both sets of players. So that was his role um, in him and I, actually, uh, working on the, the area and getting chairs and, and tables together to have the meeting. Um, the one thing that was, as far as I'm concerned about that that hearing, was um, the fact that, you know, Harbhajan uh, refused to talk about it because his, he didn't understand uh, English language. Uh, he couldn't speak it. Uh, we offered to, to get an interpreter, which which he didn't do. Uh, and it was very unfortunate. And from that point of view, it, it came across very negatively as far as I'm concerned. And this whole this whole um, monkey gate, as it was 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 uh, called, uh, really started in India uh, prior to this 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 tour. Uh, and apparently. Uh, on that tour, Andrew Simons had been been called a, a monkey by by Abhijan Singh, and after the second or the third time, I'm not sure which it was, uh, Ricky Ponting said to to Andrew, "Listen, let's get hold of the match referee and get this sorted out. Go and carry on." And apparently, Andrew Simons uh, didn't do that. He said, "I'll speak to to Abhijan and, and and leave it at that," which which happened. We then had the incident at uh, the Sydney Test match uh, where. Uh, Sachin Dendulkar was batting, Hobbijan Singh was non-striker, Brett Lee was bowling, and Andrew Simons was at mid-off. Something happened between the two of them. No one really knows. Apparently, at the at the hearing that I had, a couple of Australians said they were, heard the word monkey used. Uh, there was an exchange of words between Hobbijan and Andrew Simons. Uh, and at that stage, it was a tight situation in the game as well because Sachin was was pretty well set. Harbhajan was was making a few runs. He had sort of, I think, 15 or 20 not out, so um, it, it was a tense situation. They needed to get wickets to, to try and win this match. And when I saw Ricky Ponting running off the field, I just wondered, having known a little bit about what happened in, in India, uh, what was happening. And he reported to his manager. Uh, his manager reported to, to us um, of what had transpired out in the middle. And the unfortunate thing from that, from that, from the, the hearing was that 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 Harbhajan refused to to answer any questions, and 
Uh, it was made up of what other people said, and they, they gave his version of it. Um, Sachin Tendulkar was the, was the, the striker at that stage. He said then he he didn't hear anything that was said. Uh, he was there just to try and pacify the situation, uh, calm everyone down. Um, subsequent to that, you know, things did change. But uh, I ended up by saying that was a racism verdict, uh, which was very, very tough to do. Uh, the Australians apparently had been asked to to change the the, the level of a level three, a level three point two to a level three point one, which was uh, a different level level altogether. Um, but I knew that once once I mean he'd been found guilty, uh, there were going to be repercussions. Uh, there was going to be an appeal, uh, which obviously happened, and. Uh, Nigel Peters was there to oversee the, the hearing. Uh, he had he he had said to me that everything was above board. I'd given everyone a chance to speak. Um, I'm not going to go into to what everyone said, that, but just that, as I said, the, the main criteria to me was that that Hobbesian didn't didn't refuse to say anything either way, uh, which was confirmed by by the manager. Um, there was an appeal. And the appeal was scheduled for a week, week or so later at, at Adelaide uh, by Judge Justice, Justice Hanson from from New Zealand, um, and apparently the the Indians were there. And if, if the appeal didn't go their way, they were going to leave leave the country. I don't know whether that's true or, or not. Uh, rumors were flying around, but in the interim, as I said, the Australians were asked to withdraw the, the racism charge, uh, which they they refused to do, and I think. Ricky Ponting has said in his book that when they went to that that uh, appeal appeal meeting, they they knew uh, that something was on the go. Um, anyway, the judge ruled that uh, it wasn't racism; it was serious serious misdemeanor in terms of swearing and abusing a player, and so he brought it down a level. Um, so, uh, so Justice uh, Hanson, he hadn't got all the uh, hadn't hadn't got Hobbs and Singh's Mr. Nemas that he'd have over a number of years from the RCC for whatever reason. So in fact, the punishment he received should have been should have been harsher. Uh, I, I still went on reasonably well with with the Indian players. Uh, the next Test match I think was in Perth, and the Indian players were were okay as far as I was concerned. There was not too much animosity either way. But the interesting part about this is. Nigel Nigel Peters was the guy who uh, was yet the um, legal guy, and I met him in London at, at Lord's Test match. Funnily enough, about six months later, uh, and I'd said nothing to anybody, and nobody said anything to me. And I said to I said to Nigel, "You you didn't intimate one way or the other whether I'd made the right decision or not." Um, you know, but how, how I've never spoken to anybody about it. I'm the first person I'm speaking actually to you. Uh, what did you think? And he said to me, "You had, on the evidence you were given, you had no option, uh, absolutely no option, but to do what you did." Um, which, okay, didn't make me feel any better, but I just hope that uh, the Indian, the Indian players and and hierarchy would would accept that, that the fact that all I was doing uh, was my job and I had to a job to do, which I tried to do to the best of my ability. I mean, it's a pretty 
you know, detailed account. And I would encourage everyone to get a copy of the book and what Mike said, and we'll continue about this. So Vijay, I mean, this is not a hearing, but do you want to represent the Indian mindset? Uh, what Indian, as an Indian fan, you know, 15 years, 16 years ago, you saw this and you read about it. Was the conflict with the Australians or you think the Indian fans saw Mike Proctor in a different light? And before we take this conversation further, you want to weigh in quickly? Sure, Sakib. Uh, I mean, thanks, Mike, uh, for giving your point of view because it's very important because it's not very often the match referee, I'm sure you have a code of conduct in not being able to speak to, and you said you spoke to Nigel Peters at Lords uh, in 2008, I think when New Zealand toured, that's fine. So, uh, Sakib, I was living in uh, Canada and I had returned to India for a shorter period. So I was in India. So I watched this series pretty much ball by ball and I was in between jobs. So they had a lot of time. So, uh, you know, I sat down and watched pretty much every ball. It was on Star Sports uh, channel and footage, but Indian uh, commentary. That's a very important context. I'll come to that, right? Why I'm saying it's uh, Indian commentary because Sunil Gavaskar was there. He said a few things about Mike Proctor. I'll come to that later. So then what happened? Like we were watching the game. And and I think uh, I think I'll set a context as Mike said when Australia went to India in 2007. Uh, the context is India had won India had won the uh, okay let's let's go back start of the year India played the 2007 50 overs World Cup cricket in West Indies. Rahul Dravid and Greg Chappell's side got knocked out in the first round. India faced humiliation. India was rebuilding the side. They went to England. They won the series in England for the first time in, in, in 21 years. And then this T20 World Cup was hastily arranged in South Africa. So India went with a young side, MS Dhoni and his side. And they happened to beat South Africa and then um, Australia in the semifinal and Pakistan in the final. So India was really cock-a-hoop uh, when Australia went to India for that you know five-match one, five one-day series in 2007 October. I think the whole thing started there because... Uh, the celebrations were going on and on. Australians were in the country. Indians were not even doing net practice. They were celebrating. They were given Porsche car one day. Somebody was given a Ferrari car. Australians, were, this is pre-IPL. The Australians were sitting there. They could have kept quiet, but some of them made some comments. Simons. I think Simons made a comment interestingly in Mohali saying, this is disrespectful of India not to come and have a practice when they have a, a, a 50-over series happening against Australia. Yuvraj is going around getting his Porsche key and someone else getting another car. I think Robin Uttapa, the other player in the Indian team, he came back with a retort saying, who are you, Simon, to talk about it? We are the world champions, and what you won in 2007 was very different in the Caribbean. So there's a bit of a slanging match going on between Indian and Australian players through the media openly. And in Baroda, which is now known as Vadodara, I think that's where the first monkey chance came about, where Simon said they were calling him monkey. Again, we have to give a bit of a context because... The, in 2007, at least, now I think I would like to believe it's better. The understanding of racism in India was not up to the mark because India didn't have slavery. India didn't have uh, some of the things that uh, the United States or South Africa or Australia or England have gone through to understand what racism, what structural racism, uh, Jim Crow, apartheid, and all these things. Right? These countries have gone through and have understood. India was a bit different uh, in that sense. Uh, there was no big understanding of racism. There was a lot of colorism that was there calling somebody by you know color of the skin, et cetera, et cetera, calling names. But people didn't understand what the repercussions were and how it seriously it was taken. That's the context. So when that complaint was lodged, I think the the, the police commissioner in Baroda, the state of Gujarat, he had said they were calling, chanting the, the Hindu god Hanuman's name as monkey. I think that was the explanation. Australians weren't amused. 
then the caravan moved on to the Vankhede Stadium in Mumbai. I think that's where it became a big problem because I remember Simons walked in, the whole crowd, at least two or three stands were calling him monkey. It's not just monkey. They were showing the signs of, you know, scratching like a monkey, right? They were showing literal signs. Interestingly, Fox Sports, which which was covering the series, they had done a documentary. There were a few Australians who were capturing images. So we have still images of people scratching their bodies like monkeys, which if that had happened in a European football stadium, that stadium would have been banned for a year or two. That's how UEFA works. But in India, again, it was a different context. There was an explanation. Australians raised a, a stinker. And I think there were four fans who were evicted from the ground or suspended or whatever. So Indian police took action. Indian board, a BCCI, Ratnakar Shetty, Saki, who he was part of your pod, right? He was the one who did the uh, negotiations with the Australian uh, management. And it was agreed that those fans were evicted. So to give a bit of a context, at the one-catered stadium in Mumbai, Simons was racially abused, though Indians claimed that it was they were calling a monkey for a different reason. Without telling the world, you know, without probably understanding that calling Simons, who has a bit of a Caribbean blood, technically a black person, half black person, monkeys, racial taunting. Anyway, so I think that's where, as Mike talked about, uh, there was a, an agreement between Ricky Ponting and uh, the Indian team that that word would not be reused or it would not be used again. That was a gentleman's agreement, as they used to call it. That happened in Mumbai. Well, then, of course, India had played a home series against Pakistan and they came to Australia in 2007-8 for the, the Boxing Day test and SCG test and stuff. Now, I think as an Indian fan, you know, having watched a lot of the cricket in that series, I think the Indian argument was it was all started by Simons. Uh, I think during that partnership, there was a bit of a verbals going on. In a typical Australian game, right? Australians, you know, chat a fair bit. It's a few expletives with F word, C word, et cetera, et cetera, right? Apparently, he was chirping. And in one of those... Uh, I think Brett Lee's bowling spells when Tendulkar was batting on way past his 100. And I mean, Harbhajan was batting on 63. I mean, or whatever, 50-odd he was batting. He gently tapped uh, Lee's backside with his bat. According to him, he was a bit of a banter. I think Simons took offense to that. He went, We saw that on TV. Right? He went. He took offense. He went and straight away told him in no uncertain terms, you're not touching my mate's you know, backside or whatever, whatever, right? I think that's where the whole thing started. In the Indian argument that it was Simons who was chirping away all the time. And he was provoking, and uh, Harbhajan responded. Now, interestingly, what uh, Harbhajan said, did he call him a monkey? Did he call him something else? We don't know, right? Because there was no audio evidence. Now, the Australians were immediately incensed, and uh, they they immediately decided no, enough is enough. Now, again, to give a bit of a context, Mike Proctor was not seen as the person who was directing traffic from an Indian fan's perspective. The biggest villain of the piece from an Indian fan perspective was Ricky Thomas Ponting, a great player, a successor to Alan Border, Mark Taylor, Steve, or three great captains. But Ponting had a bit of an interesting history because he was seen as a person who had a who got a black eye, who misbehaved at a nightclub in Calcutta, who was evicted. You know, there was a bit of a history. He was a young man who grew up in in a tough neighborhood in Tasmania uh, to become almost the best player in the world, right? And it was a great achievement and he was mellowing down and maturing as a person. But I think what Ponting was doing in one of those ICC meetings, the year prior to that, he had vocally expressed the fact that, you know, we need to do more to bring some of the traditions back to the game. So one of the proposals that came from ICC, I think Percy Son was the, I, I could be mixing up, I don't know who the ICC president was. They said uh, racism is something that every captain has to bring to the table. We all need to adhere to that. I think Ponting had also suggested that, uh, taking the word of the fielder 
had to come back to the game. It's one of those glorious traditions of the game. Now, but that's something that ICC can't direct, but Ponting was trying to talk to each captain. Prior to that, New Zealand had played in a, a one-day series with Australia where he went and spoke to Daniel Vittoria and tried to have that arrangement. And Dan Vittoria said, no, nah, mate, no, I'm not agreeing to taking the field. Uh, sorry, taking the field is what? However, when India visited Australia in 2007-8, Anil Kumble, the Indian captain, Ponting again went and told him, Anil Kumble agreed. It's a very, very important context because when... On the, in that last afternoon of the SCG test, when a few controversial decisions were given with the umpires, the commentary in the Indian TV was, you know, really heating up. Sunil Gavaskar was openly saying a few things about umpire Benson and Bucknow. Everyone knew, at least, at least I knew that there was a pact, but at least the viewers didn't know because the commentators are not telling that there was an agreement between Ponting and Kumble, which meant you have to take the fielder's word for a catch. Now, whether it's gamesmanship or cheating, that's a different conversation. So these are some of the things. But I think the real issue was Australians had a bit of a reputation back then as, you know, sledgers, expletives, effort, seaward, etc. But when Australia said, when Ponting said with a straight face, we'll say what are these things, but you cross the line and say something racial, I'm going to go and dob into the match referee and I'm going to make a complaint. I think that's what didn't sit well. I think Guardian or one of those British newspapers wrote very well. They said something like, if anyone else had said that, we would take it. Ponting, Ponting of all people has got no moral, can't take a moral high ground and go and complain. I think his reputation as who he was as a player kind of went against him, I would say. The other interesting thing, Sakib, as a context, which I clearly remember, the two umpires, Mark Benson from England, former English player, and Steve Buckner from Jamaica, Montego Bay, Jamaica, both of them didn't hear a word of what Harbhajan said. Usually, it's say umpires who have to come and complain to the match referee saying, I heard something. But in this case, it was Ricky Ponting who went to the umpires, who convinced them saying, hey, Harbhajan Singh said this to Simons. I have a series back from India and therefore you need to go and complain. I think that is what didn't sit well with the Indian uh, viewers because if the umpires heard it, they were neutral. They could, they could go and complain to Mike Proctor, who were the match referee? That's life. But the umpires didn't hear anything. Ponting, the Australian captain, he took, he went and said to them, and they formally lodged a complaint. I think that was something that didn't sit well with the Indian team. I mean, maybe Mike might have a view for that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let him speak about it a little later. That was one thing. The other thing, I think when the complaints went, I, I'll give a couple of examples, right? Deepak Patel, the former, uh, uh, former Kenyan-born New Zealand off-spinner, he had said something very interesting, saying, Okay, Simon's okay. Harbhajan called Simon's a monkey. So what? I've been called worse names. Jeff Boycott, the former Yorkshire and English batsman who was commentating on the tour, he said, even if Harbhajan had called him a monkey, so what? The problem was the world was thinking, in a way, from an Australian perspective, Australian sledge a lot. So what if they're giving if they're given something back? So it was almost as if the whole world was united against the Australian hegemony or Australian dominance in terms of, you know, sticking up, you know, giving one back to them. I think that's something the Australian team did not understand. And when Ponting said, look, I'm taking the law, I'm going to the match referee, I'm going to complain because my play is racially abused. He didn't read the room or he didn't read the tea leaves in terms of what the world perceived. He was in his own bubble. I'll give an example. I think the day after there was a, a discussion on Channel 9 studio where Mark Taylor, Tony Gregg and Sunil Gavaskar was there. Uh, I think Mark Nicholas was asking those questions and it was beamed on the both the dressing rooms. Uh, I think it was during lunch break. I think Gavaskar said something like, in Australian saying is, what happens on tour stays on tour. 
Why is that not followed here? Is it because only when the Australian says something, it stays, and when the others say something, they go and you know run to the match referee to dob someone in? Mark Taylor agreed to it, saying, yeah, I agree with Sonny. And apparently pointing almost through a punch at the TV screen because his former player is agreeing to a, a former captain from India. I think this is where the Australian mindset was a bit different. So to give it a context, Indian view was why are the Australians doing it? But I understand where pointing is coming from because having lived here for 15 years now, you know, having, I mean, unfortunately, Simons has passed away. You know, uh, uh, hopefully, may he uh, rest in peace. The point I'm trying to make here is, back then, the world was not ready to make a legality from a, a, a race perspective. I think Ponting was trying to do that, but Ponting's reputation preceded him, and that's where the problem was. The other aspect I'd like to call is, Mike talked about Nigel Peters, the, the QC, right? In my opinion, this India would have been better served had they hired a legal expert here. I know they were talking to VR Manohar in India. And who are the people like MV Sridhar and Chetan Chauhan and Anil Kumble and Sachin Tendulkar? None of them had any idea about Commonwealth law, like benefit of the doubt. You know, the Westminster system of legal thing, it's complicated, right? And they, they're not a citizen of Australia or South Africa or England. Mike is a South African citizen, has lived a lot in the UK. So these people have an understanding of the, the Westminster system which the Indians didn't. Instead of talking to someone legal in India, they could have hired a QC or a, a lawyer or a barrister in Sydney. Of course, most of them would have been on holidays, but they had enough money to hire. In my opinion, had they got it, you know, what Mike said, right? Simple case. Someone saying, I don't know English. Harbhajan had played a couple of seasons in at Surrey in England. And ironically, when he was in India in 2007, prior to the series, there was a Foxtel, a Fox Sports uh, interview with him. He spoke fluent English as good as anyone else. You know, when you have a track record, I mean, the internet is full of your English speeches. How could you go to a legal hearing and say he didn't know English and then Procter & Co. offered him legal support? How could he not accept it? To me, it's a case of Indians not understanding the seriousness of the legality of the matter, level three charge, and not bringing an Australian expert. Had an Australian legal expert been there, he or she could have negotiated even for an out-of-court settlement. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to agree, make Ponting agree to something rather than this whole uh, brouhaha about, you know, cancelling the tour. Two legal minds could have sat down like a divorce or anything, because this is not a criminal offence. This was a level three offence. So in my opinion, in summary, Sakip, the Indian ire was directed more towards the Australians, especially Ricky Ponting back then, because Ponting's reputation and also they felt. And I think one of the points, I think where the Indians felt is Mike Proctor took the Australian words over Indian words. So the allegation was in blunt, politically incorrect way, a white person took a white person's word. But however, Mike is giving an excellent point. How could you say that somebody didn't know English and not offer a legal thing? That will be seen as, you know, economical with the truth or lying. Now, to me, these are the legalities a local QC or a local barrister for India would have sorted it out rather than the Indians doing by themselves. So to me, Sakib, it's a case of Indian fans are upset with Australia and uh, ponting. I don't think Mike Proctor was was the biggest villain of the piece. Maybe the players felt that way. But to me, India should have hired a local uh, legal team. India, and also that would have sorted most of the issues. Uh, and also the other thing is interesting about Sachin Tendulkar. Though he has written in a very interesting way in his book, he originally said to Mike Proctor that he had not heard anything. But when he went to Hanson, he said, he said something in Hindi or Punjabi, Tere Maki, which is, you know, my mother's whatever. To me, a lot of Australians felt 
that was perjury perjury is a serious crime in a country like australia may not be in india because i've spoken to quite a few lawyers in the last 15 years about this a lot of them said if if there was an audio evidence for perjury sachin could have been in trouble because could have even led to jail term or a heavy fine depending on what the judge says the other interesting aspects are the fine my final point the audio evidence right originally i think what was the real thing there was no corroborative evidence of him saying monkey however apparently matthew hayden's word that mate you have used the word again i think that was there in the recording apparently that's that's what went to hansen i don't know whether it was presented to mike maybe that's the thing if there's no evidence the indian argument was how could you punish us by not taking our word i think mike's argument is because you said you don't know him english and then you didn't accept uh Uh, an interpreter how could i take your word so i think this is where in my opinion a local legal uh yeah. counseling would have helped anyway all right mike i'll give you the floor but i'll just add because i've read the chapter a couple of times in your book and uh, you clearly said one team didn't even refute the seriousness of the allegation and uh, and like we just said i've also met a few indians and you know i've been living in us more than 25 years uh you can say it honestly or ignorantly some people believe racism is a western issue indians have nothing to do with it and you mike saw that uh in at the hearing so i'm sure vijay has unpacked a lot uh why don't you take it away from here yeah i think i, I didn't know all that that's very interesting to hear all that ricky ponting background and obviously i wasn't uh, wasn't uh, didn't uh, fay with that i didn't know what that was going on at the time um but i think the, the the unfortunate thing to me was as you just said that at the at the hearing at the at the appeal to judge to judge hansen uh suddenly sachin dendorka having having said to me at the hearing the initial hearing that he didn't hear what was said clearly said that he didn't hear what was said uh but he was there and he tried to appease the situation uh which being sachin dendorka that's a kind of guy yes he wants to calm people down uh he tried to appease the situation um then at the appeal uh, he suddenly heard uh, this indian word which 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 sounds like like monkey um and you know if if sachin had told me that at the beginning i mean it would have would have would have made my job a lot easier it really would have but i i don't know to this day why sachin didn't just say uh, what he had, what he did here uh, but that that first hearing not not hearing what was said and then then hearing what was said uh it's just disconcerting to to hear all the all the ins and outs of it um i i can understand where the the, the indian indian players were coming from uh with the the press i know were were, were very anti uh myself as as you've, you've just said uh because of the decision i made it's against the indians it was, it was me against the indians really and i, I took the australians word against against them uh but as as Nigel Peters said that he was a QC he's now actually a judge and i asked him you know having heard all the evidence we finished it about i don't know it must have been half past 2 3 o'clock in the morning by the time the hearing was over and i never had a chance to speak to him uh because he left immediately went straight off from that hearing almost to the hotel and then to the airport and when i did approach him in, in london about because i I didn't know no one had said anything to me all I knew it was negative impacts from it uh and that's what he said to me he said on the evidence you were given uh, you had you had no choice but to to come to the decision you you did come to um but a very very sad 
Uh, as I said, I always got on well with those Indian players. I got on well with the Indian people. And then for me, um, you know, what more can I say, really? So let me ask you this. What Vijay said, again, I, I'm sure Vijay cannot speak for every Indian. He's only speaking for what he saw. And, you know, he's been part of many cricket discussion over different forums, Twitter, etc. So is it reassuring that Indian fans didn't see you as a villain? And more importantly, did you feel the Indian players and the Indian cricket ecosystem didn't see you as a villain or your relationship was altered forever after Monkey Gate? I think after Monkey Gate, um, my my image with the Indian players was altered forever. Um, that it happened without mentioning any names or, or numbers, but uh, I was at Lord's a while off that, maybe a year or two down the line, might have even been longer. And I knew a couple of the Indian players pretty well. And, uh, they just uh, walked by me. You know, they didn't, uh, they didn't want to know me. And I realized then that, um, you know, this had a huge, huge effect on them. And all I was trying to do was to do my job to the, to the best of my ability. And um, I just looked back and say, if Sachin had, had come out up front and said that, um, I think we, we wouldn't be talking about it. Absolutely. So, so, so Sakib, one, yeah. one thing I want to add is very interesting, right? Ricky Ponting, who was seen as a villain back then by the Indian fans. Now, if you look at his life, he's part of all the IPL coaching roles. And more importantly, he's now a respected commentator and his views are, I mean, he's almost on par with uh, Michael Atherton. It comes to, uh, you know, very intelligent and, you know, you know, people evolve. And I think... Uh, I agree with Nigel Peters that from a Mike Proctor's perspective, based on the available evidence, right, what he was given as a job, he did what he did. Now, I think in my opinion, things would have been different. India had a different legal representation. If India had approached differently, it, it was a, a legal uh, thing where Mike had a QC. India didn't. India probably didn't know the seriousness of the allegation, the importance of racism, right? 15 years down the road now in 2023, I think when Simon's passed away, Harbhajan made a statement, quite a few Indian fans, I could sense that there's an increased awareness towards racism. So if the same incident were to happen in 2023, I think a lot of people would be a lot more aware. I think even India is becoming more global, more people have traveled and stuff. But probably in 20, 2007, 8, it was different. Again, the other part I would like to, I didn't miss out, missed out was, I think Sunil Gavaskar made an interesting statement. I think that's something, in my opinion, was very disappointing. Uh, Sunil Gavaskar is a hugely respected um, person. Uh, to me, the best expert from an Indian perspective. But he kind of made a statement about Mike Proctor after the SCG test, saying Mike chose to uh, agree to the Australian words over a Sachin Tendulkar word. He he openly said it was because of the color of the skin. To me, that is unacceptable for two reasons. If Sunil Gavaskar was an independent commentator, he has every right to say whatever he wants. But he was part of an ICC technical committee. So basically, Mike Proctor and Sunil Gavaskar were part of the ICC technical committees and, you know, pretty much part of the same organization. To me, Gavaskar could have avoided that comment because that's a bit of a character assassination because as Mike Proctor said, he had gone by what was presented to him as an evidence. Now, if his judgment was poor or he could have done differently, that's different. But accusing some, you know, how the racism charge, you know, came as a big thing and pointing did and thing, but calling someone like Mike Proctor as, you know, you, you would support a white man's word. To me, that was below the belt. I, in my opinion, uh, that 
Gavaskar could have very well avoided. At the same time, it was also the Gavaskar who was in commentary talked about Mark Benson and Steve Buckner. Let's call it call it out, right? There's some poor umpiring decisions on last day. When you try to save a test match, when you get a bump catch and when you get LBWs, India got two or three bad decisions. And again, in the first innings as well. So if you purely look at it from an umpiring perspective, yes, a few decisions didn't go India's way. But that's par for the course most of the times in Australia when you play in a way test. I think the great Bob Bulmer, the late Bob Bulmer, when when he had toured here as a coach, both for South Africa and Pakistan, he said, we used to have a, a counter and he used to say, even with neutral umpires, how decisions were hard for the visiting teams to get for a variety of reasons. So, in my opinion, um, Mike is right about the fact that, you know, he probably did what was best given to him. Indian players might have a different view. My only disappointment was Sunil Gavaskar's statement. That could have been avoided because we shouldn't be doing character assassination in such a way by calling people white, black and brown. That's something I think we should all get away from. It's a small world. And especially when he was part of an ICC committee, I don't think many from the ICC came to the defense of Mike Proctor, uh, which was disappointing as well. Yeah, I'd also like to add something. Gavaskar was my first cricket hero, but you're right. Uh, there's no need for that kind of a judgment when you are in the booth as a commentator. And secondly, Gavaskar has found his voice. We liked that as Indian fans in the early 90s, but sometimes it should not be an expense of these kind of remarks. Uh, and also, I would like to highlight while we, you know, judging some of uh, the aftermath of Monkey Gate. Uh, Australian Cricket Board also is a guilty party here because Alan Border and some of the former captains were not happy as they pretty much requested their own players to downgrade the seriousness of racism appeal so they can maintain cricketing ties with the BCCI. And, you know, that's that's where cricket is at the moment. Uh, you know, there's a big three and out of those big three, India is clearly uh, the superpower. So I think Alan Border and some others spoke about it openly that uh, and the late Andrew Simons was not happy. I'm sure, you know, Vijay, you must have read about the aftermath that he probably, his psyche was impacted that the home nation uh, kind of downplayed uh, the allegation charges. Yeah, I think absolutely, right? Uh, Ponting uh, felt let down. Um, and I think Simons was a really affected part of his game. He was a superstar, especially in one-day cricket, and he was cutting his teeth in test cricket with a brilliant 100 at the MCG in 2006-07, the year prior to that, at the Ashes with Hayden. And he was expected to grow into a test career, but I think this really took a lot out of him, uh, mentally and emotionally and psychologically. I'm not too sure what sort of support he got. Um, um, I think, in a way, it's very unfortunate. And when he passed away, a lot of people were genuine in their... Uh, in their condolences when they felt. I think I could sense there was a bit of a guilt conscious from the Indian perspective because they knew they were united as a country. They stuck behind Harbhajan Singh. But I think, as we all know, right, this happened post, uh, you know, what, 15, 12, 14, 13, 14 years later, people have moved on. They've kind of realized he was hung out to dry in a way. And with IPL, a lot of Australians coming in, Indians have started to see different cultures, how things happen. Maybe it was at, a, at an era when, the game was not really global or the Indian influence was there, but the understanding of the cultures was a thing. I think, I mean, the fact that you could have a beer after a game, um, I think those things had died down by then. So I think that was also a factor that they couldn't sort it out without going to a match referee, without taking the legal route, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe, I think it's a great question for Ricky Ponting. Would he have done it in 2023 if a similar situation were to eventuate? like he did in 2020-08. I think that's a question for hmm. Ricky Ponting. So let me bring Mike in quickly. So Mike, you played a career against Australians and, you know, 
all Can I just add something there about about sure. that? Can I just add Absolutely. something there that you Absolutely. know you you hear you, you hear stories about, and I spoke to some of the Australians, one or two of them. I don't know who it was who came up to me um, and said that Harbison actually had gone to Andrew Simons to apologise. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. And Andrew Simons sort of didn't accept, didn't didn't accept it. But um, I heard that that story. And just to go back to the legality and getting legal people involved in a, in a, in a hearing of such such serious nature. Uh, the ICC, after my hearing with, with the racism charge, uh, any level three or level four uh, accusations uh, have not, are not heard by a match referee. They heard, they heard by a, a lawyer, attorney, a QC, whatever that may be, which I think is a great, is a great idea because match referees, I have no idea about legal aspects of, of life anyway. So to ask Matt Pepe to preside over something as serious as this, um, I think is a very tough call. Yeah, it makes sense. The game probably changed forever because that's uh, there was no precedence for that kind of a hearing. And uh, yeah, cricket had to learn from its mistakes. And like you said, you know, more legal personnel are needed. So Mike, if it's okay, can we keep you for another 10, 15 minutes? We have a couple of questions. I, I don't want to... Uh, uh, what time have you got? Yeah, 10 minutes? Yeah, sure. Ten, ten yeah. Okay. So in in the book, in the, in the chapter, you said you've been silently uh, paying the price forever. So just fill in with the listeners, you know, how your career as a match referee ended, but <clears throat> there are other repercussions that you had to endure along the way after Monkey Gate. Well, I think the tough part from, from my point of view after that episode was uh, no one from South African cricket said anything to me. Uh, not many people spoke to me about it at all. And I know it's a long time down the road now, so I've given a little bit of a version of, of what was said, not by everybody. Uh, but it's something that you didn't talk too much about. So I, I didn't know really where I was coming from. That's why having spoken to Nigel Peters, it did, did help a lot. I we, we had, in, the IPL came to South Africa and I was, I was due to be a, a match referee. Uh, I signed papers. I think Mr. Modi was a charge then. And we I knew my itinerary, et cetera, et cetera, along with, with the umpires, because the, the match referee and the umpires go, go hand in hand as far as administration is concerned with flights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I sent my sign, signed off contract back. And the lady that was, was handling this, this affair, shame, she was, she was rather embarrassed. She was very kind, but she just said, uh, I'm afraid you, you, you know, you, you don't want it anymore, um, you know, that, that your contract is being signed. So, um, subsequent to that, I, I did find out from a friend of mine that, uh, you know, that because of, because of the Monkey Gate situation, um, the Indian, Indian, Indians didn't want me, would want me around. All right. So let's move on to a slightly different topic here, uh, to lighten up the room. <laughs> uh, but thanks, Mike, for being so candid. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's your account hearing from you and then Vijay adding in a lot of nuance to it. Hopefully it's a good conversation. So let's talk about all-rounders. Arguably, you're one of them, the greats of the game. Uh, so f- this is more like a barstool conversation. If you run into Mike Proctor or a couple Dave, you know, that's what fans ask. And let so Vijay and I have been kind of objective, but let we want to also be fans because this moment doesn't come quite often. 
So if if I were to ask you who are the greatest all-rounders uh, the test the test game has seen, uh, or at least what you have seen on your watch, of course, remove yourself. You know, I don't want to put you in the spot. Uh, who fits the bill? And, you know, the word balance comes into it. Who, which, which one or two players come to mind that lead great balance to the side, uh, you know, for a test cricketing all-rounder? And the names are there, well, you know. The, Go ahead. Well, the first one, obviously, um, as far as I'm concerned, well, so obviously, you know, I haven't said what I'm going to say, but so going to Garfield's service was uh, the, the greatest I've, I've seen. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to play against him a number of occasions, play county cricket when 1968 the ruling came in that uh, overseas players could play county cricket. And then in 1970, when the rest of the world team was uh, cho- chosen to play against England in, in lieu of the South African tour that had been cancelled. And he was just a, such a magnificent player uh, from batting, from bowling, um, fielding, could ball seam, could ball spin. And, and he just fitted, he just ticked every single box that was available. He is not not guys that can, you know, feel like he can can bowl pace like he can and and bowl good good spin like like he could. Uh, he he was just uh, something else and uh, a super guy. He really was. Um, so I was very fortunate to to play uh, with him and and against him. And then then I think obviously South African Jack Callis. I mean his record is just just amazing. Um, the amount of runs he scored, the amount of wickets he took, uh, was incredible. Uh, his, his record speaks for speaks for itself. Um, of the others, I mean, Keppel Dev was a was a, was a top all rounder. Uh, Ian Botham, we had a few I had a lot of games against him with Somerset, Gloucestershire. Um, he was a fantastic all rounder, and we all know what what he did in, in the in, particularly in the Ashes against Australia. Um, Flintoff again winning the Ashes for England, fantastic all rounder. Um, Imran Khan. I, I enjoyed playing with Imran. We played World Series cricket together, and he was a he was a tough, tough competitor. Was, was Imran? I mean, he bowled with, with great pace, and uh, he was a a real, really good batsman. Um, but to me, uh, I would know, say Gary would 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 be would fit that ball more than more than anybody else. And, and the South African guys, I mean, Clive Rice, Eddie Barlow were both you know tremendous all rounders, and uh, there were a lot of all rounders in my time. Around that, uh, Richard Hadley, Sir Richard Hadley, uh, he was a fantastic all-rounder. Uh, obviously, more in the bowling department, but he he scored runs, he scored test test centuries, so uh, he was a genuine all-rounder as well. But this day and age, there don't seem to be to be that many. But um, I was privileged to play in, a, in an era when there were there were a lot around. Vijay, any last question Great. from you? Yes, uh, Mike. I think uh, I'd like to bring this up because. To me, it was the greatest ODI game ever played, the 1999 semi-final between Australia and South Africa at Edgbaston. I won't talk about the result, but I'll talk about the slanging match or the commentary thing between you and Bill Laurie because to me, it looked as though, you know, commentator was supposed to be neutral, but somehow you felt it was a gladiatorial, uh, you know, fight between an Australian, former Australian captain who had lost 0-4 in South Africa in 1969-70 uh, who had some scars from the, the previous 66-67, while you were carrying the scars of the current South African side who couldn't beat uh, Australia, uh, sorry, South Af- Australia at home or away in the 96-97-97-98 because you could sense the, you know, the, the tension in the air because uh, when he said, uh, miss it, you said, you know, miss it or what, it's a boundary. And then 
those two boundaries unbelievable close to hit and especially the second one you went like you know your commentary was so good and it's not very often someone could match bill lorry you did that day but very interestingly even in the headingly super 6 game the game prior to that before that steve war ponting partnership um, you were literally saying bye bye south africa bye bye to australia right if australia had lost one more wicket so was it you know i mean i'm just trying to understand your perspective was that your best commentary moment the banter because i've heard from harsha bogle that you were almost seated to your you rooted to your seat for the next 20 minute dazed after the result or what was going through your mind uh, during the game at edgbaston i know a game that a lot of south, Afri- south africans would like to forget but what was your uh, recollection of that particular commentary stint with bill lorry well just going back you didn't want to mention the results of the game those that don't uh, don't remember it but it was a, it was a, ended up a tied a tied a tied match with south africa uh didn't go through to the final because they had lost in the round robin to australia so they went to the final but you know i remember that game obviously very very well and my sort of rap with with uh, bill lorry was was interesting uh because you know he was he was sort of saying that that's for that's for um what well, i was saying sorry that that's for and, and um he he would be commentating and sort of almost challenging me to 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 say something and and um I, funny enough I've, i've never i i never ever heard a recording of it but greggy tony greg once said to me uh he said you should get a get a recording of that listen and uh, listen to it but uh you know i i haven't but it was it was a good slanging match i remember i, I was standing up talking and bull standing up talking and we were sort of bouncing one thing for the other and I was singing the praises of of Lance Cluzer what a great shot etc etc and then the match was over and I just couldn't believe the, the way it the way it happened and as um you you said I I was seated to my seat for about 20 minutes after that game and I did I was totally totally shell shocked really um because it was such a stupid thing to happen the, the run out one batsman drops his bat they they didn't run and they were both at one end it was it was just a complete debacle um and i remember going into the society dressing room uh, just after that and it was like a, it was like a morgue really it was few guys sort of tears in their eyes a bit of blubbing going on people trying to look away very very little said but the atmosphere was was really 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 distraught really and i remember i'd said to the guys you know you go go back to the hotel I'll, i'll get a lift i'll sort myself out because i sat there in 20 minutes in the in the there you know commentator's booth and then going into the dressing room for just a couple of minutes and then i walked outside and everyone had gone and i walked back to the hotel which was about four or five no maybe not maybe three or four miles into edgbaston um that's an amazing game of cricket um I enjoyed funny enough commentating with Bill. I mean he was he was aggressive and and and, and a great commentator and, and I really did enjoy that. So Mike uh, quickly one last note sorry <laughs> I can't resist. So we just said you were having a sledging or slanging match with the great Bill Lorry. So is sledging something cultural? I mean back in the day when you were playing Australia actually on the pitch did did South Africans get unsettled with the sledging or did you guys give it back because from the indian fan culture we found sledging to be very uncomfortable whenever we caught the whiff of it and now living in the us i know sledging goes on in most sports so were you also of the notion that you can sledge hard but then grab a beer at the end 
like the Aussie way or was sledging something that bothered you and fellow South Africans when you played uh, the Australian teams in the past? Yeah, well, the Australian the Australians came to to South Africa of 66, 67 first when I first played. And there wasn't much there wasn't much said on the field, funnily enough. There really wasn't. Uh, whether it was because we were we were winning, I don't know. And then 1970 as well. I, I think I recall if there was anything said, we so we sort of gave it back. But the, the curry the, the, the curry cup used to have uh, quite a verbal on the field. Uh, so I suppose the players were hard to a certain extent, but not nowhere near like the Australians because they got a they 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 went went overboard at times uh, and uh, got got pretty personal, which you know is a, is a definite no no. Um, but I think the, the, ask the question. I think when we were maybe because of the Curry Cup, but when we we did get it, it actually made people more de- determined. Um, and I, I've seen it. Uh, I, the, the one game that brings to mind at the top of my head, I remember at Kingsmead when Warner um, and uh, Quinton de Kock they had a go at each other, and there was a lot of verbal during that during that game at, at Kingsmead. Uh, but the South African batsmen played played really really well after all the all the hoo ha that was going on in the middle. And I think what it does does mainly is uh, it actually brings out. The best in you, you know, it would me uh, rather than the other way around. But you don't feel you don't feel uncomfortable. You feel uh, not not that you don't feel uncomfortable, but you just makes you feel more determined. So, Mike, one, I'll, I'll squeeze in one thing before I let you go. Eddie Barlow. Sure. Um, so, Eddie Barlow. I remember watching the highlights back in 92, uh, 93, wondrous test when Sachin Tendulkar played a, an uppercut which went over the slips of Donald for a boundary. Trevor Quirk, the famous commentator, said that's an Eddie Barlow shot. So, I mean, I've written a lot about it. I've spoken to a lot of people online. Some people say, no, 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 um, Alan not play the shot before anyone else. But is it true that Eddie Barlow is the first one to play the uppercut or the slash over the slips for a boundary? Or do you think there was somebody else who was prior to him? I think that he was the first guy who looked as though he he did try to play it up. I mean, whether he just gave the cut shot a lot more, was a lot more fierce with it. Uh, but he certainly did get a lot of runs down there over the, over the slip and, and gully areas. And that's where and other people weren't doing it. Uh, but he was a, and it could be a, a very aggressive, aggressive uh, player, batsman, Eddie Baller. And he was particularly, particularly good on the, on the cut shot. So um, it was something that, I think he started it in Australia in about 1963, 64, uh, and then it, it became part of his makeup almost. That he he did not that he did it that often, but he didn't often enough to where other people didn't. Uh, so I think he probably he probably started it off. No. thank you, thanks, Mike. Hi, Mike. It was incredibly special. I expected this. We prepared for this podcast, you know, uh, for some time. Thanks for thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, it was every bit as I had expected. Vijay added a lot of nuance to it. No, thanks. Thanks very much for for the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, what you guys said because you gave me a, a different light on a, a lot of the facts that I didn't know about in, in Australia and the Indian Indians' feelings. So I, I've learned a lot, and I appreciate you know all your your work and 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 what, what you said in this podcast. It has helped me. And thanks very much. It's been an honor and a privilege, really. Thank you, Mike. Really, really appreciate it. I mean, if someone had told me a few years ago I would be on a podcast with Mike Proctor, I wouldn't, wouldn't have believed it. 
Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure and a privilege.